Jesus. We are currently in a series called I Am a Lifestyle Missionary, and we've been walking through the premise of the understanding that God would communicate to us that mission is not meant to be an action of our church, but that actually mission is a part of his character and nature. Meaning that God is the God we serve is a God that's on mission, who's active, pursuant, chasing every heart, mind, soul down on earth, wanting to reach people with his good story, his good news. And if that's the case, then actually missions is less about us changing our location then, and then more about us changing our hearts. That we would have a posture of our heart, realizing, wow, my God is on mission. He's calling me now into a family who's on mission together to serve people, to put the world straight, to make things better once again. And so because of that, then we need to have a renewed understanding of the basic elements of our faith, the things that we do, like we talked about praying. That praying is not meant to be just something we do around a religious activity, but it's meant to be something that every morning we wake up expectant in our heart that the kingdom of God is already here, active around us. And he says, I've done everything that needs to be done for you to be involved in my kingdom. And we can wake up going, wow, I'm in the presence of God every waking moment of every day. But I'm not always awake to that reality. And so we talked about remaining awake to that. And then last week we moved into the idea of scripture, that scripture is something that's meant to be lived, not just memorized. That while we can memorize scripture, but not for the purpose of blasting people with what we think are short, quick verses, but for the purpose of understanding Scripture, because if we learn it, we should be living it. And that we should then bring Scripture to our workplaces, to our um, jobs, to our universities, not in the form of a karaoke machine and a big black book that we stand up and tell everyone to repent, but in the form that we embody the Scripture. We live the kingdom, that people would look at us and go, man, you look like you live in a way that's truly meant to live, that when I look at you, I go, man, if, if I was trying to understand the goal of a human being, that's you. And we say, that's because I align my life with the story of God. And as I learn this story, I live this story. This morning, we're going to move to the next practice, which is about community. Because I feel that if we understand that Jesus is on mission and we join him on mission, and then that shapes the way we pray and it shapes the way we look at scripture, then it should also shape the way we do community. And this morning I want to talk about the idea that we are meant to change together, not alone. We live in an American culture, and in our culture, different than many Eastern cultures and other parts of the world, we celebrate the individual. Now, that celebration of the individual is a biblical idea in many ways. But we not only celebrate the individual, we kind of like put the individual up on a platform. And many of us kind of went to school at a young age, loving our friends, enjoying each other in class time. But very quickly we began to learn that we needed to stand out. Because if we didn't stand out, how would we be significant or how would we be known? And, and so in our culture, we celebrate people as individuals, but to the point that we feel like we're supposed to do everything on our own. That we should do everything in life on our own because that's what we celebrate. Wow, she got through that tough time on her own. She's amazing. Wow, he got to that place, his business on his own while wow, we celebrate that. And we put a pressure on ourselves that as Americans, we should strive to be individuals standing on our own two feet, doing things on our own because that's what will be celebrated. Now you can see this if you go to YouTube and do search the acronym DIY, do it yourself. You can literally do anything because of YouTube. I was with my children yesterday at Walmart 
And my kids the whole time were bugging me saying, Dad, I want to go to the diaper section. I want to go to the diaper section. I'm like, what? You're eight and six. We don't need to go to the diaper section. I want to go to the diaper section. I want to go to the diaper section. And I was, eventually got to the point where I was a bit impatient. I said, fine, just go to the diaper section. I'll come meet you there. So they went to the diaper section. My wife and I were finishing our shopping. We went back to the diaper section. They weren't there. We panicked a little bit in that moment. But then I could hear my daughter's voice. But it was coming from behind the shelves. And apparently, they had watched a DIY video on how to build a fort in Walmart by going behind the diaper section. And what they had done is pulled out a couple of diapers, because apparently their, their platforms are bigger, climbed in behind, pushed over, and built a whole fort behind there. Because they looked up a kid's YouTube video, DIY fort in the Walmart diaper section. We encourage individualism. We celebrate the individual. And, and that's not bad, except for the fact that as Christians, when we join this family and we look at our Godhead, he is not an individual. He is what? Three in one. That the God that created everything around us, the universe, the earth, all of creation, did not do it in isolation by himself, but did it in community. That he, for whatever reason, would have designed himself to not be by himself, but be expressed as a father, a son, and their spirit. And then when he created man, he said what? You are not to be alone. And he created woman to be along their side. That, that together in their difference, becoming together as one flesh, they would have the ability to exist and create on behalf of God human civilization. Jesus came down to fix the problem of sin had a plan to save the whole earth and submitted that plan to 12 teenagers. I'm like, Jesus, what are you doing? We all know humans. You're down here to fix the problem that we created. Why would you pick 12 guys that aren't the brightest to submit your plan to? But Jesus understood something. I don't do things on my own. I do them with my father, and we do things in community. The change that I want to see happen in the world is not going to happen by myself. The change that I want to see happen in the world is going to happen together with my disciples. And then we see that Jesus eventually sends out the 72, and he sends them out two by two, no one by themselves. He celebrates the idea of where two or three are gathered, I am in their midst. And the disciples pick this up and carry this idea into building the gathering of people around the way that no one would ever be alone, but they would always be together. I would venture to say that this concept of community is extremely foundational to our faith. Maybe I would push it to be a little even more extreme to say you can't truly have our Christian faith alone. It will only happen together. Because Jesus is so animate on this. The Father and the Son and the Spirit work in the Godhead like this. If God didn't think he could do it by himself, and if Jesus didn't think he could do it by himself, why do we think we could do it by ourselves? We're not even God. So when I look at community, I look at this idea of changing, meaning that all of us want to see our lives changed meaning that all of us would like to be a part of God's change happening in the city as we join him on his mission, I begin to realize that that's the point where maybe we need a better understanding, even at 
as Americans, that that change is not meant to happen as individual superstars, but as a community of believers together. Now, as I began reading about this and studying about this, I began to realize when I looked at the way Christians oftentimes were removed from the mission of Jesus, or when I looked at Christians oftentimes were struggling the most, it was because something was happening where Satan was attacking their community. In fact, you could probably see this where the idea of even family is being attacked. The idea of even marriage is being attacked right now. We have church splits happening all the time. In some ways, people would say that we're so hyper-connected because of Facebook and Instagram, no one even knows how to be a friend anymore. And could this be because the enemy knows that if he can attack our form of community, he can take us out of the game. Meaning that if he can attack our form of community, marriage, family, group of friends that grew up together, church community, if he can attack that and break that up, then he knows that he can stop the change we want to see happen in our life. And he'll stop the change he knows we want to see happen in our city. So as I began to study about this and read about this, I began to realize, yeah, there's some, there's some definitely things that the enemy does to break apart com- community. And I'm, and I'm sure there's tons of them, but this morning I want to just share four of them with you that I've been kind of stirring on. These, these are four enemies of community. Or these are four enemies that desire to stop the change happening in your size, in your life, and stop the change happening from in your city. The first enemy of community is this idea of discouragement. Now, why, Matt? Why are you saying discouragement? Well, I would venture to say that it takes great courage to be in community. It took great courage for me to stand up there with my then fiancé, profess my vows, and move into a point of a marriage. It took courage to say that I'm trusting you with my life's hopes, with my dreams, with how I feel. I'm trusting you. That was a courageous act. It takes great courage for a couple to say, we're going to create life. We're going to make little human beings and try to raise them to survive in this world. It takes great courage to be vulnerable at the workplace. It takes great courage to find a church community that you can come worship with and be a part of that community and be vulnerable together. I would venture to say that it takes great courage to be together rather than being alone. So what does the enemy want to do? He wants to steal that courage by discouraging you. How? I don't know. Bad looks in the church, in the church service? Misinterpreted Facebook posts? Or Instagram pictures, <laughs> little side comments at work, or things that happen as a couple or as a family that things are said, it triggers past trauma, and we pick up a resentment there. And in the midst of that discouragement, we begin to feel our courage seep out from us, and we begin to desire to pull away from community. Some of you here might be in a position right now where you're feeling like, oh, man, I'm discouraged. This thing happened at work. I don't know. This guy was promoted above me. It's kind of pulled me out. I'm not sure I want to work there anymore. I'm not sure I want to stick by the people that I've been working with that have been my community at work for a while. Somebody say, Matt, I don't like the Bolton at church here in Cabo Beach Church anymore. I'm discouraged. I want out of here. <laughs> Just kidding. We all love the new Bolton. That was a joke. <laughs> when you feel like the enemy's coming at you with discouragement, here's an encouraging thing to do. Don't quit. Don't quit. 
Know that the discouraging moment that you might be in where your courage feels like it's being taken away, know that there's probably another side to the story. That the enemy is just trying to stir this discouragement up because he's trying to rob from you your courage to force you to pull away from community. Don't allow him to do that. Don't quit in that scenario. Keep pushing in that scenario. Seek to get through the conflict with the person. Get resolution from that situation. Most times if you talk with that person physically, you'll find it was nothing that you thought it was. When discouragement comes, don't quit. Second thing that I've seen that comes around quite a bit is this idea of criticism. Now, criticism is interesting because we all know the saying, right? Who's our worst critic? Ourselves. That every morning when we wake up, we look at the mirror, or, or for me, I have like these several mirrors in my house. I know where they all are in the mirror in the morning because when I wake up, I walk by and I'm like... No, those muscles didn't get any bigger when I was sleeping. (laughs) Where I walk by and I immediately, the first thing I do in looking in the mirror is I begin to pick apart the things I don't like about myself. Oh my gosh, that hairline's going further back. Looks like I got to shave my head more often. (laughs) I start nitpicking and, and eventually after that, then I start nitpicking maybe the way I do things or how I say things or I nitpick how I talk. And then eventually I just get so tired of nitpicking myself. Do you know what I do? I start criticizing everyone else. Usually my wife first, then my kids, then my friends, then people at work. And I eventually become someone that becomes very critical of the things around me. And guess what? That is pretty discouraging. When you find yourselves getting in a place of criticism, being critical of other people, and it puts you to the point where you begin to pull away or break apart this idea of community, let me encourage you something. Find something to compliment about yourself. Find something to compliment about someone else. Find some positive thing that you could speak with your words to speak life in that situation. And you'll find that when light comes in, darkness begins to run. Let us not be people that are critical of of each other. God knows the world is full of criticism right now. What if we were to be people that stepped in and spoke life not criticism. Third thing that I've seen the enemy use to break apart community is this idea of comparison. Theodore Roosevelt once said, the thief of joy is comparison. But it's funny because we compare ourselves to one another, but we all know scientifically that no one else has this thumbprint. That no one else will ever have this thumbprint. No one has it right now. And no one will ever have it in the future. That that my very thumbprint speaks of my uniqueness. That my very thumbprint speaks of who I am as an individual with gift, with a gift and jobs that I have to do and and good works that Jesus has prepared in advance for me to do. That that this is that no one else can do that. Yet, for some reason, I get consumed with trying to be like somebody else. I get consumed with wanting to look like this person, act like that person, speak like this person. I get consumed with trying to have the house like that person, the car like that person. And it's almost the point that when I compare, I'm comparing myself so much that I can't even celebrate when those close to me do something great. What do I do? I get jealous. Jesus would not want us to compare because he would say in his story that he's made every one of us unique. 
That actually there's a calling on your life, there's gifts for you, and there's good works prepared in advance for you to do that no one else can do. And if you don't do them, no one else does them. He's not going to pass them on to someone else. They're not going to be put some other place. And those, that calling, those gifts, and those works, guess what? The Bible says they're irrevocable, meaning it doesn't matter what you've even done with your life. No one else can do them. And God has said it that he'll never take them away. So when comparison starts seeping into your life, find something that's unique that you can celebrate. Be a community that celebrates the uniqueness of people there. Be a family that celebrates the uniqueness of your children. Be a workplace that celebrates the uniqueness of coworkers. Be a university that celebrates the uniqueness of learning in the students. What if we were the people that walked in society and celebrated the uniqueness of everyone that was around us? We might just cut through the darkness of comparison and build a lot more community around us. So the enemy comes and he tries to discourage you. And when he does, don't quit. The enemy's going to come and he's going to try to get you critical. When he does, find something to compliment. And when the enemy comes, he's going to try to get you to compare. And when he does, find something unique to celebrate. And lastly, and this is the one that I think the enemy works overtime on to get us all in this position, to pull us into. This is like his ultimate goal. And that's this idea of isolation. That if he can get you isolated, if he can be, get you so discouraged and so critical and so jealous and bitter in your comparison that then he's got you right where he wants you, by yourself. And that's where he can have a heyday breaking you down. There's a story about a woman, and she came to the point of her month where her menstrual cycle began. And in Jewish culture... When a woman came to this point, she was declared unclean. It wasn't because everyone didn't like her. It was simply because they didn't have much health care. And the Old Testament law made provisions for the lack of health care. And so because that's to prevent her from getting sick or anything else, she would leave her home during the time of her menstrual cycle, move to another location with other women going through the same thing. There they would go through ceremonial washings and cleanings to make sure everything was okay so that when their menstrual period was finished, they could go back home and be declared clean again and and fellowship and be with everyone else in their community. Well, one woman went during her time, and some women even looked forward to this time because they could hang out with other women, and it was maybe a break from what was happening in in their home or in their family. And as she went there, a couple days went past the seven days, and she was still bleeding. She got a little nervous, but thought, well, what's the big deal? It's happened before, and should stop soon. And sure enough, a couple weeks went by and she hadn't stopped bleeding. At this point, now she got a little nervous and a couple more weeks went by and she made a call back to her family to come see her because she thought, something's wrong, I need help. And they began to spend money to find doctors, or not doctors, but at that, at that time there was no hospitals, but people that could help figure out ways to make her better. A couple months goes by and she's still bleeding isolated from her family, no longer able to be in her community because she's declared unclean. Ten plus years go by. This woman's been isolated from her family this entire time. They cannot see her. They cannot touch her for fear that they would be declared unclean. Kids have grown up in this 10-year period of time. Birthdays have been celebrated during this 10-year period of time. Kids have finished memorizing the Torah during this 10-year period period of time. And guess what? She's still isolated. 
one day she's sitting there and she hears rustling of people outside the building that she's in. And as they're talking, she hears, Jesus, 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 Jesus. And Jesus had actually arrived at the shore of her village. And Jesus was began walking up and people began to run down. They get a, a look at Jesus and began to bring their sick and their possessed and their, their, their people with ailments down to Jesus to see if he could do something for them. And this woman knew about Jesus, had heard about Jesus, but also knew that the Pharisee says and other religious leaders said, do not listen to this man. He's a heretic. He's a false Messiah. But she didn't care. And in her moment of despair, in her moment of isolation... She decided to do something. She decided to take a risk. So Jesus is walking up from the shore, and it's the crowd around him. You can only imagine. The whole village has come around him. People are carrying things and holding people. They're trying to bring him up as everyone's trying to get to Jesus that maybe he'll do something for them. This woman decides she's going to cover her face so that no one recognizes who she is. Though it's been more than 10 years, probably no one would recognize her. And she gets up and she begins to walk outside the door. And for the first time, she begins to walk longer than just the square footage inside of the place she's been for so long. And as she's walking, you can imagine the weakness in her body from having been, having been bleeding for more than 10 years. So she gets out to the open area and she sees the crowd coming up following Jesus. And she realizes the only way this is going to work is if she kind of starts walking at an angle to intercept the crowd. And then she's going to have to use all of her energy to get to Jesus. Because she can't, she doesn't want to yell and say, I'm over here, come pray for me. Because people would freak out and say, oh my gosh, it's the unclean woman, get away from her. So she's got to hide herself and use her energy to get past everyone to get to Jesus. And as the crowd begins to move up, she begins to walk towards the crowd. As she gets there, she begins to push her way through the crowd. You can only imagine the amount of energy it would take to push through any crowd if Justin Bieber walked up on the beach. (laughs) And she begins to force herself through the crowd. And as the crowd's moving, she's using everything she has. And most likely, she's getting to the point of exhaustion, her body being so weak from bleeding for so many years. But as she's going, she sees a glimmer of hope. She sees Jesus begin to move past, almost at arm's reach. And she does with one last push, pushes everything she has and reaches out and only grabs the corner of his cloak and collapses on the floor. And Jesus says something that's probably the craziest thing he ever said. He said, Who touched me? Peter's like, oh, he's saying crazy things again. Like, John, you talked to him this time. John's like, yo, I'm not doing this one. I did the last one. So Peter's like, you know, Jesus, um, I think the better question is who's not touching you right now? Jesus says, no, I, I felt the power go out from me. Who touched me? And immediately the crowd stops as Jesus is speaking. And they back away as they see this woman on the ground. And people gasp as they recognize who it is. And they move away because she's unclean. And what does Jesus do? He looks at her. And he says, hey, it must have taken you a lot to touch me. But guess what? Your faith has made you well. It's one of the few times in Scripture that we read that faith of the person was involved in their miracle. For some of you, you're feeling like you're at a point of isolation. You feel like you've been declared unclean, maybe by yourself or because you're so discouraged or whatever it is, and you've isolated yourself away. Here's my encouragement to you this morning. Don't be in isolation. Choose to participate. Take that one step. Make that call. Make that Facebook comment. I don't care how small that step is back towards community. But if you want to see change in your life and you want to see change in your city, it's not going to happen by yourself. It's 
only going to happen together. John chapter 13, in verse 34 to 35, Jesus says this. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other, just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Not your individual glory, not your great successes, not your amazing strategic plans that you execute, not your salary, not the big home you've built for yourself, not the nice car that you're driving. No, Jesus is saying, your love for one another. It's interesting because when you go through the Bible and you search out this one another term, it's actually mentioned over 60 times. It's mentioned very frequently regarding love, but it's mentioned very frequently a number, a number of other ways. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love in Romans. Honor one another above yourselves in Romans. Live in harmony with one another in Romans. Passing, stop passing judgment on one another in Romans. Accept one another then in Romans. Serve one another in love in Galatians. Be patient, bearing with one another in love, Ephesians. Be kind and compassionate to one another in Ephesians as well. Spur one another on towards love and good deeds in Hebrews. Do not slander one another in James. Love one another deeply from the heart, 1 Peter. Live in harmony with one another as well in 1 Peter. This idea of one another is so important to the fabric of our faith. We cannot see change alone. We will only see change happen together. That the world would look at us and say, man, God must exist because I've never seen so many people love one another. As we join this mission of Jesus, as we join him in what he's doing on the earth, in this simple and small restorative plan that happens for us in our daily walk, we need to understand something. It's not about us doing it alone. It's about us doing it together.